Starting next Sunday, October 11th, we are going to be studying the book of Philippians together. We're calling it Gospel Joy, which is awesome because the last thing we're going to be talking about today before we go to communion is joy. So at King's Chapel, we do uh, uh, our regular diet is expository preaching. Uh, We go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, chapter, looking to draw the meaning um, of the text that we're reading from its original context, and then look to make application. A man by the name of David Helm uh, from Simeon's Trust Expository Preaching Workshop said this, expository preaching is powered preaching. Powered preaching that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of the biblical text. In that way, it brings out the text what the Holy Spirit put in there. And that's, that's kind of what we want to do as we preach through the book of Philippians. So I want to encourage you to be reading the book, meditate upon the book, pray. Pray for me, pray for the other pastors as we look to prepare and preach the word to you. Um, each and every Sunday is... As we learned last week, right, and we've been studying together uh, what the churches do. They, they hear the Word of God. They gather together to hear the Word of God preached each week as it's rightfully taught. And, and that's the topic for today as we look at the essential church part two, um, the nature and purpose of the church. So, so politicians, the media, and the culture do not determine the purpose and nature of the church. God does. It's His church. The church doesn't belong to us. We belong to the church. He's the body of Christ. We've been bought with a price. The gospel is not the possession of the church. The church is the possession of the gospel. It's confused authority. And we're calling this study the essential church. And if you remember uh, from last week, we used a biblical definition of the local church. We're going to talk a little bit about methods today, but this is basically more the foundation of the nature and purpose of the church that really trans, uh, you know, goes beyond cultural bounds. This is what a local church, according to the New Testament, should look like and act like. And we said that the local church is a community of regenerated believers under the headship of Christ and the authority of Scripture who believe and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They organize under qualified biblical leadership, gather regularly for preaching, teaching, and worship. They observe the biblical ordinances of baptism and communion, give of their finances, give of their time and abilities. They are unified by the Spirit, disciplined for holiness, and then scattered to fulfill the Great Commission as disciple-makers or missionaries to the world for God's glory and their joy. I know, it's a mouthful. Last week, we looked simply at the first half. And we said the word church, ecclesia, the local church, is from the Greek word ecclesia, and it means the called out ones. The noun is to assemble, or the assembly, the verb is to summon an assembly. That the church is the assembly of regenerated believers, those who have been born anew, born from above, through the gospel, right? Through repentance and faith in Christ, in the person work of Christ. We are made alive by the regenerating work of the Spirit. And we are to come under, not over, the authority or the headship of Christ. He is the final authority. We are the body. He is the head. He has sole authority in His church. And the headship of Christ also means... That his work on the cross, that we are implicated in the work on the cross. That we are benefactors of the new covenant 
in his blood. We give him our sins, of which he becomes our curse, pays the penalty we owe for our sins, takes the wrath we deserve, dies in our place, rises from the dead, and by faith in his perfect life, his righteousness then is imputed to us. Our sins are imputed to him, his life is imputed to us. And he's the head and soul authority of the church. And, and that is expressed, we said last week, mainly through the submission to the authority of Scripture. Through the authority of Scripture. All Scriptures God breathed. Breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible is the sole authority for faith and practice. It is the final authority because it has God's authority behind it. It is uh, given to us and inspired by God, Second Peter, breathed out by God, Second Timothy. God's Word carries God's authority because it is God's Word. There are other authorities we mentioned, I'm not going to get into it, uh, that we have to submit to and listen to. But all authority that's been given to any authority has been given by the sovereign hand of God. But all of them still submit to God's Word or should submit to God's Word. We also believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's, he's the Lord of the church. He's the Savior of the church. Church, You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. He's the only Lord. He's the only God who took on human flesh, died in our place. He's the only Savior from sin, death, and hell. He's the only way of salvation. There is one God, Timothy uh, 2 tells us. One mediator. One between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus who gave himself as our ransom. Generated believes the headship of Christ, the authority of Scripture, believe and confess Jesus Christ is Lord, organized under biblical leadership. 1 Timothy 3 characterizes what that looks like for New Testament church, what the elders should, that lives should be like. If you keep reading in the New Testament, it tells us that the pastor, elders of the church who lead, govern, protect, and provide for the flock. The flock of which the Holy Spirit made them overseers, Acts 20. And lastly, last week we learned that the church gathers for preaching, teaching and worship, right? A church that never gathers, I said last week, is not a church. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. No such thing in the New Testament as a believer who doesn't belong to and gather regularly with the body of Christ. Assembly is not just something we do. It actually is part of who we are. Technology is wonderful, but it can't replace the gathering of God's people. And who gathers, they don't just gather, but they scatter, right? We're going to talk about that today. Into the world as, as representatives, as ambassadors for Christ in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, around the world. And we are to be his ambassadors. And then we regather again. Something gratifying, something the way God made the church and made us in his image and likeness and rewarding when singing together, learning together, preaching, hearing the word preached together. And that's what God does. God brings us together and the word is to be proclaimed, taught. Whenever the church gets together, Paul said to young Pastor Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. As the word of God is preached God is revealed. We respond in worship because he is glorified in the preaching of his word. Is because he reveals himself 
And we give him the glory. We ascribe to him the glory that is due him because of his immeasurable greatness, his infinite beauty, his incalculable value and worth of all that he is and all that he's done. That's the first half. The second half of this is simply this. We are gathered together to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. We are to give of our finances, time and abilities. We are unified by the Spirit with discipline for holiness and scatter, which we talked about and we'll talk about again, to fulfill the commission as disciple makers, missionaries to the world for God's glory and the joy of all people, their joy. So number one, from the very beginning, the church has been called, church has been, has recognized that Jesus Christ has given the church two visible signs of his special presence to his people. These signs are baptism and the Lord's Supper or communion. Some places, some traditions call them not ordinances, you probably heard this before, but sacraments. The word sacrament means two different things to the Protestants and to the Roman Catholic Church, okay? The Roman Catholic Church, we know, uh, celebrates or or practices seven sacraments, including baptism and communion of the Lord's Supper. But they teach that these sacraments, sacrifice in themselves, convey or transfer infused grace to people, even if there's no faith in the one participating in them. And that is why the Protestants, myself included, will not call baptism in the Lord's Supper or communion sacraments. We call them ordinances because it properly um, shows forth or it probably uh, gives the proper terms that convey the reality and the truth that baptism and communion, baptism and the Lord's Supper were ordained by Christ for the church. That's why we call them ordinances, to not confuse the teaching of the Catholic Church. Calvin writes this, it seems to me that a simple and proper definition would be to say that a sacrament is an outward sign, an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his good will toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. It is to, to encourage our faith. And we in turn attest our piety toward him in the presence of the Lord and the angels and before man. He writes, one may call it a testimony of divine grace toward us, confirmed by an outward sign with mutual attestation, um, testimony of our piety, our reverence toward God, end quote. I think he's right. I don't think he's right about baptism, but I think he's right about that. Outward signs of an inward reality. Christ himself ordained communion and baptism both by example and by command. Communion. The breaking of bread and the drinking of the cup was instituted, as we know, at the Last Supper. While Jesus was having his Passover dinner with his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Now, it goes back to the Old Testament, the the days of the Exodus. I don't have time to go there. I can't go there now. But let me just say that we gather around the Lord's table. As the church gathers around the Lord's table, we will today. We are to examine our hearts, the scripture says. We are to confess our sins. We are to repent of our sins. And then we are to rejoice in the wonderful provision of God in Christ. The communion table should remind us of the cost of our salvation. It reminds us of the price Jesus Christ paid for our pardon. It reminds us of of his faithfulness to the church. 
His great sacrifice. The fact that he died in our place for our sins. And when we take on communion, we're, we're giving a testimony and we're confessing that we, we can't save ourselves. Jesus Christ must do that. Because the table, the communion table, the Lord's Supper is for flawed people like you and me. Hebrews 10 says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeated the same sacrifice. <laughs> We're sinners that can never take away sin. But Christ came, offered himself a tall time, a single sacrifice for sin. He sat down. It's complete. The right hand of the Father of God. And the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming that Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, reconciles us through the blood of Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. It is a a look forward, uh, it's a look back, excuse me, to the cross, but it's also a look, uh, you know, we look forward, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us, forward to the crown, the day in which Christ will return. Do this, he says, until my return. I mean, what a gospel. The bread representing the broken body of Christ. The blood, uh, the cup, the juice representing his blood shed on our behalf. It's not just a memorial service. I don't believe it's just remembering. I think there's a very special presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit as we partake of communion together. Again, Calvin says this. The sun remains in the heaven, yet its warmth and light are present on earth. So the radiance of the Spirit conveys to us the communion of Christ. Communion is a time to strengthen our faith, to confess our sins, to get stuff out of the way, and to grow in Christ-likeness and in our relationship with him. Baptism is another beautiful ceremony, a, a ritual, a picture of the gospel given to the church, commanded for believers back in when Jesus in Matthew 28, we'll get to that at the end, tells us to baptize folks. Again, baptisms, or I should say, you know, washings, ablutions, cleansings, it didn't start in the New Testament. It goes back, way back in the Old Testament. Right? It was, it was a sign to the Jewish people of washing from filth, from the defilement of sin. Baptism is a picture of that. It's the washing and cleansing we receive when we come to faith in Christ. Our, our sins are washed away. Full immersion baptism is a picture of the death and resurrection of Christ. He was put into death and buried and three days rose from the grave. We have a baptism tank back here. It's a full immersion. You're down into the water as Christ died and you come up out of the water as he came out of the grave. Baptism is also a picture of our death to self and our new life in Christ. An outward sign of an inward truth, reality of new life that we received when we repented and believed the gospel. Baptism is a picture of our new identity. That we belong to him. And we belong to one another. It's not just that we, we identify with Christ. Baptism is we identify with his church. Showing that we belong to God and we belong to each other. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6 verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead... By the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And here at King's Chapel, we believe, as talking about methods, we believe in full immersion. We believe what the scriptures teach, that one is baptized after conversion. We see that in Matthew 28. We see that in the life of the church in the beginning of Acts. 
And all of real scripture says that after a follower has come to faith in Christ, they are to proclaim that. They are to make a public confession of that and be baptized. Now, if you notice, I kept saying that the ordinances were given to the church, to the church, to the church. Here at King Shab, we believe that although there are, there are very rare occasions where these ordinances have been administered outside the local assembly, it is, it is generally done, it is majoritively done within the authority and the oversight of the church. Okay, I'm not going to get into all the different nuances of that, don't have time. But when we practice communion, when we, when we practice baptism, we're obeying Christ through his, through his teaching, through his example, and both of them proclaiming the gospel. That's the point. As the assembly of people also not only observe baptism and communion, we are to give of our finances, time, and abilities. Now, I'm not going to launch into a give me your money sermon. That's not what this is all about. How much you should give? I get that question from time to time. Before tax, after tax, I'm like, uh, you know what? Scripture... New Testament scripture actually goes beyond the Old Testament law, as we mentioned in Ten Commandments. Sometimes it's easier to fall back on the law and not the gospel. So, according to the New Testament, our generosity, especially in chapters uh, 2 of Corinthians, according to the apostle, our generosity of our finances tied directly to the generosity of Christ, directly to the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is taking up money for uh, Jerusalem and, and to bless the churches. And he writes to the Corinthian church, he says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous. He's looking for finances to help churches. Generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You're generous, we give thanks to God. For the ministry of this service, the giving of generosity of this service, is not only supplying the needs of the saints... But it also overflowing with many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, by you giving in generosity and thanksgiving, they, those who receive it, will glorify God, praise Him, worship Him, because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. The gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contributions for them and for all others. Then he says this, For while they long for you, and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that's been upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That is the gift of the gospel. See? And the point that I want to make is just when we are part of a local community, it means that we are to support the ministry, to give regularly, Second Corinthians, uh, when you have decided in your heart not reluctantly or under compulsion. Romans twelve thirteen contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek hospitality, 1 Corinthians 16, the first day of the week. Put something aside, store it up. As you may prosper, so that will be no collection, collecting when I come. So like any other family, you take responsibility financially and the giving of your time and your talents. It's the expectation of the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells the churches concerning gifts. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. All members of the church are given manifestations before the common good. Verse 7. I don't have that up there, but I'm reading it to you. Verse 7. For just as the body is one and has many members, 
And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, the church. Jews, Gentiles, free, slaves, all made to drink of the one spirit, the spirit of God. Verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. And if your ear should say, I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, (laughs) where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But, as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. The body of Christ, the the church, the gathered assembly, is only healthy when each one of us, giving of our talents, giving of our gifts, giving of our time, are using them for the common good. Both our finances, our ability, and our times, our spiritual gifts for the common good. We have a healthy body. We like to give this definition. Spiritual gifts is an ability sovereignly given and empowered by God. Oh, Lord, I want that gift. Please give it to me. Give it to me. I want to speak in tongues. I want the gift. Okay. Keep doing it until the cows come home, right? You can ask. But God sovereignly decides that. Not you. And not somebody with a handkerchief and sweating with a, with a suit on and a pinky ring. It doesn't work that way. All right, sorry, that was a side note. All right, back to the text. It is an ability sovereignly given, empowered by God for his glory. Not yours, his. Used in the building up of the church, the body of Christ, the work of the ministry. We're talking about we need help. And the advancement of the kingdom, the the kingdom, the, the proclamation of the gospel. Not for your own little pity party or your little glory self. The glory of God sovereignly given... Build up the church, work of ministry, advancement of the kingdom. I think that's a good definition of spiritual gifts. And we are what? Unified by the Spirit. I said this many times before. The church does not gather, break out a document, and everybody gives their personal opinion on what we think we should be unified around. Lots of diversity, lots of changing thoughts, lots of things going on. We don't just get a document and decide, okay... Are you okay with this? Are you, and we go around and we make this document up and say, okay, we can get around that. For the most part, we don't create unity. We join it. His name is Jesus. Okay? We join it. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus alone unifies the church. I mean, we should work toward unity. I'm not saying that. But we're unified in the gospel. It is the gospel that tears down walls. It is the gospel that tears down the wall of, of hostility, that sin and brokenness Genesis 3 has built for centuries and, and millennial. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, about the Gentiles, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, the gospel. 
For he, Jesus, who is the gospel, himself is our peace, who has made us both one, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, he abolished the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity, one new man, in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, see the unity here, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The result of sin is that humanity became divided because of sin. Racial division, cultural division, all kinds of division, and we can't get along. But the church, but the church, Tim Keller says, is to show the world how in Christ the lost community of humanity can be recovered. We, the church, are to be an alternate city of God, Matthew 5, in the midst of the city of man. Showing the unity of persons across culture and race and class barriers that only Christ can bring. And finally, Tim Keller writes, someday the curse will be totally gone. Then he quotes Zephaniah 3.9. In that day, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all may call on the name of the Lord and serve one another. End quote. It is through the gospel, the perfect life and atoning death and resurrection of Christ that unites us spiritually and vitally, not only to Christ, but to believers of all nations, all tongues, all tribes. But the gospel also speaks of the church's promised hope. The promised hope, a world when Christ returns, a world cleansed of, of suffering, of evil, of injustice, of racism, of sin and evil. The new heavens will not only contain a new humanity... but it'll have a a new humanity without violence and conflict. Family, recognize this. The power, the power of that new creation, that new humanity, the regenerating power is, is in you. Not complete. And it's the same regenerating power that rose Christ from the dead The same regenerating power that lives in us is the same regenerating power that will renew and redeem the whole world. We are first and foremost children of God created in His image. Nothing nothing wrong with being proud of your heritage, your ethnicity, but we are first and foremost people of the gospel. Three ways to think that through. I don't want to belabor this, but a little bit because I think it's I think it's necessary. How does the gospel unify us? Number one, the gospel unifies us as people in the gospel. Okay, how humbly each and every one of us we are humbled by the fact that each and every one of us, all of us, deserve death, hell, judgment, and condemnation, but we've received the free gift of faith and salvation. The gospel levels the playing field for everyone. Everyone, damned but freely and graciously pardoned in the gospel. Number two, we're unified as people being transformed by grace into the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined, he's talking about salvation here, to be conformed to the image of his son. This is where we get sanctification from. 
This work of sanctification is not only a matter of grace. It's going on for each and every child of God. We're all in the same direction, growing in the likeness of God. Some are growing faster than others, and some are hitting a bunch of rocks along the way. But we're all going in that direction, and God will make sure of that. And he's not a respecter of persons. It says over and over in Scripture, Romans 2, God shows no partiality. Acts 10, Peter, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. James chapter 2, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The gospel unifies us not only by our need of grace, damned but graciously pardoned, and the work of grace, unity around the sanctification process, but also the proclamation of grace, the gospel of grace. And we'll look at that as we close. Let me move on. We are unified by the Spirit. Chapter 2, sorry, I didn't have that up there. And then discipline for holiness. A church is the place where sometimes hard things need to be said. I heard one say that soft words create hard people, but yet hard words sometimes and many times create soft people. Discipleship, learning and growing in the likeness of Christ, growing in holiness, is tough at times. It's tough at times. We need exhortation. We need to be encouraged. Two things, I think, under this discipline for holiness. Number one is found in Hebrews chapter 3. I have the verse up. We covered this a few months ago. Take care, brothers or sisters, in the church. He's talking to the church. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day. Every day. As long as it is called today that none of you may be what? Hardened, right? So we want hard words to soften us. Hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not me. You're deceived. <laughs> if you say not me, you're already deceived. Okay, sorry. Me too. And the word paracleo, we get that word um, um, to exhort. Two words. It comes from two Greek words. One is to come alongside and the other one is to call, to announce, to proclaim. John 14, 16, Jesus calls the, the Holy Spirit the helper. It means to come alongside someone. To come alongside you, uh, someone who, who is for you and, and, and stands by you. And, and there's a piece of this that courageously speaks the truth to you. To exhort Paul tells Timothy, until I come again, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. It's even one of the spiritual gifts in Romans 12. Some people just really do it well. The church is to develop relationships within the body, community groups in particular, building these relationships that we can speak truth in love to one another, to build up relationships and to, to impact the family, the church, brothers and sisters, to impact them when they're struggling, when they're, when they're facing hardship. It's building a love relationship so that the tough conversations can happen within a loving atmosphere. If we're united together in our need of grace, if we're united together in the work of grace, then we should be able to have those conversations. The second aspect of the church discipline for holiness is your favorite and my favorite subject. 
Church discipline. Just kidding. Not kidding about church discipline, but it ain't our favorite subjects. The hardest thing pastor elders go through. We've, we've done it here, unfortunately. Christ's Spirit uses the local body of believers to form and maintain the growing holiness of God's people. And part of that is through church discipline. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians says this. I think it's chapter 6. If someone is caught in a sin, you, are, who, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. He warned the Thessalonica church, or the Thessalonian church, to keep away from every brother who is idle, Paul says, and do not live according to the teaching you receive from us. If anyone does not obey our instructions in this letter, take special note of him, do not associate with him, in order, this is so countercultural. Countercultural. If he doesn't pay attention, make note of him, don't associate with him, in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Yeah, doing bad things will make you feel bad. It's part of the process. It may be foreign to some of you. Paul tells Titus. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time after they're having nothing to do with him. Now, the goal of church discipline is, is, is restoration and joy. Matthew 18, obviously the most, maybe one of the most well-known teaching about church discipline and exclusion from the church. Jesus says, your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. Not in a prayer group. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Mark that in your Bibles. If he listens to you, you've won an argument. Nope, you won your brother. But if he will not listen, take two along with him. Every matter will be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuse, even at that point, take it to the church. Not you and your friend having coffee at Starbucks. Take it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. 1 Corinthians 5, another well-known passage. Paul's talking about sexual immorality. He says, expel the wicked, among, the wicked man among you. Mark Dever, Nine Marks Ministry, if you don't know him, know his ministry, it's a great ministry. Um, lot, writes a lot about church health. He says this, church discipline done correctly might bring a sinner to repentance, but it will always faithfully represent the gospel to the surrounding community. Church discipline should be practiced in order to bring sinners to repentance, a warning to other church members, health to the whole congregation, a distinct corporate witness to the world, and ultimately glory to God as his people display his character of holy love. End quote. That's a great quote. It's about love. It's about love. It's about holiness. Give, excuse me, observed ordinances, give of the finances, unified by the Spirit, discipline for holiness, and D, scatter. Scatter to fulfill the Great Commission as disciple makers, missionaries to the world. Very familiar passage. You all should know this by now. Matthew 28, before his ascension, Jesus says, gathers everybody together from the mountain and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, 
I don't have time to get into this either, but just so you know, the Great Commission did not start in Matthew 28. God's people have always been, way back in the Old Testament, given the task of demonstrating and declaring the holy glory and goodness and grace of God. I can go back many, many years. Really back to Genesis 3. I'll try to be concise here, though. We won't go that far back, right? So, in, in, this, in this sentence, in the original language, the only real command that's given here is to make disciples. Jesus says, I will build my church. You go make disciples. We're not trying to build churches. We're trying to make disciples. That's the command. How do we do that? By going. As you are going. Make disciples command. And then baptize them and teach them. That's what it means to fulfill this command. To make disciples. And how does one become a disciple, a learner, a follower of Christ? The same way each and every one of us have, and that is what? The gospel is proclaimed and preached, and we respond in faith, repent of our sins, and believe on Jesus. We take up our cross, and we follow him. Jesus' mission is clear. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as he is about to ascend in, back to glory, back to his Father, he says, you're going to wait in Jerusalem. You're going to receive the power. The Holy Spirit will be sent. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witness. Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. The Great Commission is powered by the Holy Spirit. We are to be ambassadors and witnesses, fulfilling the Great Commission in Jerusalem, in our own cities, in our states and countries, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the Great Commission. Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Make disciples learn as those who emulate Christ's life, rely on his sacrifice alone for their salvation, believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, possess the Holy Spirit, and what? Live to proclaim and to do the work of Jesus, who is seeking and saving the lost. And therefore, disciples, followers of Jesus, are disciple makers. We are functioning as missionaries, not by emulating the culture, I've said this before, or escaping the culture, I want nothing to do with, but engaging the culture for the cause of the gospel. Missionaries, wherever we are. And yes, we honor those And Jen's here today, I saw her come in, who serve God in foreign places, who leave families, who leave their home and go to to dangerous places. We honor them. We love them with a special honor and love, no doubt. But that does not stop you and I to live as missionaries in the place God has placed us as well. We must love people, understand people, learn the questions and fears and hopes of people. And we are to take that unchanging gospel into their worldview. Not adopting their worldview, but looking for a bridge, looking for a way to share the good news of Jesus where they're at. That's wherever we are. Whatever we do. Whatever part of the world the Lord brings us. And here at King's Chapel, uh, making the gospel known is central to everything we do. A church is not really a New Testament church if they're not living on mission. As the Father sent me, I send you. We are gospel-centric. We we, We seek to keep Jesus, his person and work, and the gospel, the mission, 
in all that we do here at King's. Every member of the body of Christ is sent into the world to demonstrate and declare the good news of Jesus Christ. Every aspect of the church orients its life around God's mission for what? God's glory. We're talking about demonstrating and declaring the gospel as a means of glorifying God. Now, I don't want to lose you on this. Demonstrating and declaring the good news of the gospel as a means of bringing glory to God. Okay, following me? First, you have to understand that God creates us in His Imago Dei, in the image and likeness of God. Uh, he, he chose in love to create us in His image to display His glory, His value, His worth to the world. Right? He didn't create, oh, I'm lonely, I got nothing to do, I really would like people to sing to me. No. Not out of loneliness, at, not out of His emptiness or need, but out of His fullness, love and goodness, God creates us. The ability to know him, to love him, to obey him, to worship him, to glorify him. Isaiah 43. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone is called by my name whom I created for my glory. You see, God made us. We, we were made by God and for God. It is very God-centered. Not man-centered. Psalm 96. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all people. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all the peoples. God is so exuberant about his glory that he makes its exhibit the glory of all that he is and all that he does. And that's got to be our goal as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. The glory of God. And the primary purpose... Uh, of Christ's humiliation, his descent from glory to take on flesh, and then his death on the cross, his exaltation, the gospel, is for the glory of God. Your salvation is meant to put the glory of God in display. His glory, his grace. Second Corinthians 4. In their case, what case? Those who don't respond to the gospel. The world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face. That's the intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ. The gospel. Jesus Christ himself, the good news of the gospel, is the highest and the supreme display of the glory of God. Let me say that again. The gospel, Jesus Christ, is the highest and supreme display of the glory of God. His infinite value, his incalculable worth, his immeasurable greatness is seen in the gospel. And his name is Jesus. Understand that this morning. And when God gets glory, we get what? Somebody. Joy. Our salvation is for the glory and infinite enjoyment of God. Because God overflowing with joy. His overflowing joy in his own glory is, is, our, uh, uh, is a source and basis of our joy. So where do you get that from? First Peter. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Jesus. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. And... Rejoice with what? Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. God gives us joy because God is himself joyful. He's the source of joy. He's the source of love and truth and mercy and grace. Joy is both a description of what God is and what God does. You know, in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he says that this, 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 this servant who, who did well with what was given to him, the master says to him, you are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will, make, uh, I will set you over much and enter the joy of your master. Luke 15, parables of the lost coin, and, and those three parables in a row, talks about God's joy of, of those who repent of their sins turn from their sins and, and receive salvation. And, and, the, and those parables speaks of God's joy over the one that was found, over the coin that was found. By seeking God's glory and praise, you're bringing your joy to consummation. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God of our Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us with Christ, in Christ, with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Verse 4, look at that. Even as he chose us in him, that's the gospel, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined, called beforehand, and adopted to himself sons, daughters, through Jesus Christ, again the gospel, according to the purpose of his will, to what? The praise of his glorious grace of which he blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. John Piper says the gospel is the supreme expression of the grace of God, and the grace of God is the supreme expression of the glory of God. And the display and communication of the glory of God in the world is the supreme purpose of God in all of history, and all that he does for the everlasting enjoyment of his people, end quote. Notice in Ephesians that verse 4 and verse 5 speak of the gospel, speak of election, speak of predestination, speak of adoption, and it's all moving for a reason, for a purpose. It's going somewhere. But look at verse 4. Verse 6, I mean, to the praise of his glorious grace. The greatest display of the glory of God, his infinite value, his incalculable worth, his immeasurable greatness is seen in the gospel. Grace is what's being praised because Jesus is that supreme expression of his glory. And then we get joy. You know, you don't praise something that you are not rejoicing in. You don't praise something you're not rejoicing in. Again, one more quote from John Piper. If you try to praise which you don't enjoy, there's a name for it. It's called hypocrisy. Praise to the overflow of joy and the greatness of God's grace, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, is why all this in Ephesians is happening. Why there was election, why there was predestination, why is adopted sinners into the divine family, so that his glorious grace would be enjoyed forever, and the joy would spill over into praise, end quote. When the good news, when the gospel is proclaimed, when we are living on mission, when we're living as missionaries and disciple makers, Jesus Christ is not only received as Savior and Lord and Rescuer and Master, but our greatest joy and treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like treasures hidden in a field. When a man found and covered it up, 
Then in his joy, he goes out and sells all that he has and buys that field, Matthew 13, 44. And when you experience the gospel, when you experience the forgiveness of sins, when you experience the mercy and the grace and the incalculable worth of God, that should make us, that should, that should propel us to share it with others. This morning I was talking to Pastor Ricky and Chris uh, about some risotto I made. Came out really good. What I want to do, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring it in. I'm going to make it one day for you guys. Like, yeah, we'd like that. I'm like, yeah, it was really good. I'm going to share that joy with them. <laughs> They're the recipients of it. I'm like, you like mushroom? You know, what do you want to make? Why is that? It's not just that I love those guys, love good music, love good food. It's because when you share the things you enjoy and love, it enhances and completes the joy. Something about just eating it by myself just doesn't cover when I'm eating it with smiling face like, yeah, this is good. I'm like, yeah, it's good. It's like winning the World Series and no one's up. It's terrible. Ephesians, I have Ephesians up there. Okay, I have one more verse I want to share with you. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Now, everything we've talked about as far as this last point, for God's glory and their joy, listen to Paul in chapter 15, speaking about the church and about Gentiles in Israel. He says this, Romans chapter 15, verse 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises that he gave to the patriarchs. And, not only that, in order that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, he goes back to the Old Testament, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it says, Rejoice, have joy, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that all the peoples extol him. And again, he's going back to the Old Testament. In Isaiah, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will be Gentile hope. Then he says this, like a benediction. May the God, may the God of hope fill you with all joy. And peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is sharing the gospel. He says, I become all things, all people. He says, I want to share in its blessings. I want to, I want to see the joy. God's joy fill those folks who repent and believe. I want, I want to share in the, in the gospel and share in the blessings of the joy in which God brings. In fact, in Acts, it says twice that the church preached the gospel, shared the gospel, and they were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. We are to gather together to practice the ordinances, which we will. Give of our finances, time, and abilities, unified by the Spirit, disciplined for holiness. Scatter as disciple makers, demonstrating, declaring the gospel where God will get joy and they will be filled with God will get glory and they will be filled with joy. So we're going to end in the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's all about Jesus taking on humanity, 
living that perfect life, and then being crucified on our behalf. He died in our place. He took the, the, the penalty of sin. He died and absorbed the wrath we deserve. And he rose from the dead. And that's what communion is all about. And if you're not a follower of Christ, you've never repented and believed, now's the time. Today's the day. You can't save yourself. That's what communion is about, to show that you can't save yourself. You need a substitute. Jesus Christ is that perfect substitute who died in your place. If you've never received Christ, today's the day. Believe in Christ. Repent, turn from your sin to try to justify yourself and trust in Christ alone who justifies you. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He was your substitute. Took what you deserve upon himself. That's what the communion cup, and that's what Jesus did on the last day, uh, on the, on the, when he had the, the last supper, the Passover meal with his disciples. He took the bread and he broke it. Now, if you have your cup with you, I want to invite you to just pull off that top piece. And you have the wafer. This is a time of, of, of confessing sin. This is a time of repenting of sin. This is a time of encouragement and rejoicing in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, I want to invite you to partake. We're going to partake together in a moment. But if we can, let's just spend a moment in quiet silence. And just confess, repent of any sins that you need to this morning. Let's just spend a moment. Thank you for dying in our place. We confess you as Lord and Savior. And we rejoice in your work this morning. Family, let's take together the bread. Now as we drink of the cup together, I I suggest that you open it away from your body. Let's get that open. Remembering that when Jesus took the bread and broke it, he did likewise with the cup. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Blood was shed so that we can be his children. We can be redeemed. We can be cleansed from sin. We can be washed from our filth. And we can be reconciled to a holy God. So we thank him for the cup. The blood of Jesus, who alone can save and wash us. Let us drink together. Father, thank you that we can not only hear the gospel being preached through your word, but we can see the gospel being declared in the ordinances you've given the church. And we recognize, Lord God, that we can't save ourselves. That is only by 
the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ can man be made right with you. And it is by faith alone and grace alone, through Christ alone, for your glory alone. And we pray, Father, that we would be a church, not a perfect church, but a church willing to humble ourselves, to recognize our dependency upon you. But Lord, we would be a church propelled into the world, whether it's locally or globally around the world, to demonstrate and declare the gospel, to see lost sinners like us redeemed, washed, cleansed, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.